let me make just a few introductory remarks. First of all, of the privilege that has been granted me to come and share my experiences with God and his word with you. I don't do that much anymore. I've been, well, quote, retired. And when you've given your life, I won't tell you how old I am or you won't invite me back, but uh, <laughs> to teaching and preaching and studying the word of God and now you don't have any place to share it, it's like, <laughs> it's hard to explain. And so given this opportunity, I want to thank Pastor Paul and Joel and the staff for inviting me to come. I'm focusing my thoughts this morning out of the Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You probably know it very well. But if not, let me read the text from the NIV Bible briefly. It reads this way, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, it goes a series of ifs, and if any comfort from his love, and if any common sharing in his spirit or any communion in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassions, now he concludes the if. There's the if and then there's always then. Let me give you a little Greek lesson. To say if in the Greek language, you can say it and mean three things. In this particular sense, it always has a positive response. If you have any comfort from being united or encouragement from being united with Christ, then you do. If any comfort of his spirit, yes, you do. If that is the case, then here's where he ends. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being, one, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing. Here's the verses I want to concentrate it on, on verses 3 and 4, and then later on the later verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Let me introduce and set a context for these, and then we will continue. I want to say two things this morning, but let me generally introduce it. One of the most encouraging and dominating, affirming a human person is to offer them the gift of forgiveness. Forgiveness is essentially love in concrete practical action. Forgiveness has the power to remove guilt, anxiety, dread, and shame that we all at times in our lives experience. Forgiveness restores broken relationships. It helps us to reunite, unite again by that. It is a remarkable gift. That gift becomes greatly intensified when God offers us forgiveness. We come to God, as the song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We have nothing to offer him for that forgiveness. And yet God extends it to us. We must never diminish nor neglect this remarkable teaching of Holy Scripture and the redemption in Christ. But what I want to say to you this morning is, that's only half of the story. As remarkable as it is, it is only part of the story of what God is doing in redemption. 
You see, I want to suggest to you the premise that the ultimate goal of redemption is not only forgiveness, though that's very important, but is that the task of restoring us as believers back into the image of God. God has committed the divine self to helping us to be exactly those persons that God originally created us to be and which he said we are in the divine image of God. In other words, God is working in the task of restoring those virtues, those character traits that originally marked us in the image of God, once again appearing in our lives. That will be the theme of my message. Now, please, you do not have to agree with me. I don't mind if you see me afterwards. I think you're wrong, Pastor Don. And tell me why. And we will have a nice discussion. <laughs> I never think I have it all straight because I, I am a contemplate. I, that is, I'm a man who spends a lot of time just talking with God. Talking and really almost praying. Your prayers come out of that communion. I go down the road. I usually wake up early. Sometimes three, four in the morning. And so I sit there and talk with God. I lay there and talk with him. Lord, what about this? I'm preaching tomorrow. Does this make any sense, Lord? I don't think. What if I go down the I talk with him about everything. Sometimes I get it in to say, well, that's not going anywhere, Lord. <laughs> Let's try something else. It's a great time. It's one of the most precious times I have in my life as a human being. Just talking with God. And so my task this morning is to deal with this. And to get you into it, let me make a suggestion to you. It's a hypothetical suggestion. Let's suppose, for sake of illustration, God comes to you this morning. Nobody can see him, but somehow you can. And God says to you, I will give you one virtue. Whatever you like, I will give you one virtue, unhindered, not diminished in any way, in the fullness of that capacity. Now, here's the hypothetical question. What would you ask for? Now, you don't have to tell me, just think. I mean, there's many things you might ask God to give you. How many of you might think, Pastor Don, you missed the greatest opportunity when you ask God to make you humble? Really? You chose humility? Yeah, I did. I want to talk about that this morning. Why in the world would you choose and select humility? After all, humility is a, really a neglected and degraded virtue, both in our literatures and in our plays, in our movies, in our society. The humble person is seen incorrectly as one who doesn't stand up for him or herself, never expresses their idea lest they should do something that's not really correct. They're a person, metaphorically speaking, that we can easily disregard. A person who we can treat like a doormat, metaphorically speaking. Someone who doesn't stand up for their rights or their values and never expresses themselves. That's how we see. So why would you choose to have God give you such a virtue? Humility has its cousins, generosity, kindness, gentleness. This is what God wants you to be, so that you are really happy and free with yourself. 
Now let's take a look at our text this morning. I want to say two things. First of all, I want to talk about the, the principle of humility. And in this text, there are two things. He's, Paul's going to tell us what it is not and what it is. And then lastly, I want to talk about the practice of humility we find in Jesus Christ our Lord. Fascinating. I could spend all day just meditating on the practice of humility. But let's go to the text. If you have your Bibles, take a look at second chapter in Philippians, verses 3 and 4. Here's what it is not. He says to us in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's the first characteristic that it's not. Or vain conceit. Negatively, those are contrary to humility. Let's take a moment. Selfish ambition. This word does not occur often in the New Testament. And uh, just to get at it, I will broaden it in our society. The key to this word is achievement. And the principle I deduce, deduce from this is simply success is a necessary ingredient for determining who I am as a person. That's what this selfish ambition means. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. I was a missionary in Hong Kong, China for 10 years, and often I would be invited to various places, Indonesia, Vietnam, other places, to speak. So I did a lot of flying. Flying is probably the boringest thing you do. You sit there and look out the window a while and say, whoa, wow, that's, look at those little things down there, people driving and going. They just sit there. So bored, I picked up one of the magazines that's in that little pouch in front of you, turned to an article about a, a very well-known CEO of a major corporation. I was reading about it, and then something struck me in that article. He said this, I paraphrase briefly, I have to be first, I have to win. If I don't, I'm nothing. I thought to myself, really? If you're not the greatest, the most significant thing in the world, you do not see yourself as anything? Selfish ambition. This is how it comes up. And he says, that's not what being humble is. The second word for what it is not is vain conceit. Literally, this means vain glory or empty glory. I take from this, I think Paul used two words because one didn't quite complete what he had. Now, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing this is what Paul did it. Vain glory, not achievement, but stresses recognition. You need to know what I've done. For example, this is not true, but it would be nice if it were. I invite you to my dinner after church. And we have a wonderful dinner. My wife's a great cook. And so after I invite you down to the lower legion of my home. And there are trophies and signs and things I've achieved all over down there. And you say, wow, I didn't know you had all of these trophies and awards and everything. And I say, oh, no, that's no big deal. But I want you to know. <laughs> that's what vain conceit is. It's not that I achieved them. It's that you know that I achieved them. This is the opposite, what I see Paul saying, as humility. Then what is it? Paul goes on and gives us two other considerations of what humility is. It is not 
selfish ambition. Now, please don't misunderstand. This does not mean that I cannot work hard at a job or strive to be a vice president. Or the key here is, in order for me to conceive myself as something, if I'm just the janitor and I strive to be on the elder board of the church, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's when I get it and now you say, oh, you must be a great guy. <laughs> That's not humility. But what is it? Let us go down and read in verse 4. Strange language, Paul. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. That's the first emphasis that he gives. Seems strange. The second one keeps on going. But each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's reflect for a moment. Consider others better than yourselves. I'm partly a philosopher, but mainly I work in theology. When I was at the University of California, I took a course in a 19th century philosopher by the name of Nietzsche. I don't know if you're familiar with Nietzsche. Nietzsche did not like the Christian church, and he did not like humility. So my paper in that course was I wrote on Nietzsche's concept of humility and tried to say he's all wrong. <laughs> Nietzsche was the person who said, if you got the power to do, no matter what it is, it's right. Hitler liked Nietzsche a lot. If I can do it, no matter what it seems to anybody else, then it's right. He said, Christians are just too weak to voice themselves. He gave an illustration, but I'll put it in contemporary terms. Say we're driving down the road and we just bought a brand new Lexus. Highest, best car of the line. And accidentally, a drunk guy smashes into our car, destroys it. You get out of your car as angry as you can be. He says, I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. I'm going to punch him right in the nose. He gets out, and he's six foot four, about 275 pounds of raw muscle. <laughs> now, that's what I should do. But no, you say, oh, you should be humble and kind. <laughs> that's the way he described us, because we don't vent what we think is right. But that's not what it means. The principle I draw from this, consider others better than yourselves, is this principle. Every person whom I meet, I regard as a person of value. Regardless of religious orientation, where they grew up, what is their, uh, their race or so forth, every person I meet is a person of value. That was challenged for me by God. One afternoon, I received a phone call from a young woman. She had been in a congregation, the University Adventist Congregational Church, and I served as interim pastor there for a year just before I went as a missionary to Hong Kong. She called me on the phone. She says, hi, Pastor Don, long time, da-da-da-da. I wonder if I can ask something of you you would do for me. And I said, certainly. What is it? My husband is the co-owner of what was then, I don't think it's any, it's called Wiccan Sticks. They sold candles and all this kind of stuff. His partner died. He's dying, rather. He's dying of AIDS. Want to know if you'll go and visit him? Sure, I don't mind. I would be happy to do that for you. Went downtown to the hospital, walked in, said to the nurse, I want to visit so-and-so. What's the room? And as I said that, she looked at me kind of strangely. And I got the impression, oh, do you belong to that community of people? 
And I quickly said, oh, no, I'm a pastor coming to visit him. <laughs> then I thought about it. So I went into the room, and over the next several weeks, I visited with this young man. He knew the gospel very well. I didn't have to share it with him, but we talked about it. His father had disowned him, who was a fine Christian man, would never talk to him, so he left his home. We talked about Jesus' love for him. Talked about how Jesus died for him, even in his state. He was resistant. So I, fine, that's fine. I'll let God work and let his word work. He passed away about two weeks after my last visit with him. But one day I came to him and he said, Pastor, you're probably right. And I think I need to accept Christ again. He's a person of value before God. Many people that we dislike. We have turned the gospel into a box. Either you're in or you're out. And we've changed it into an intellectual concept. Which is what it's not intended to be. And therefore I see people as people of value who are loved by God. That's what humility says. The next one is a bit harder. When the text reads, consider others, but in each of you, consider not only your own interests, but the interests of others. Wow. Lord, you really get hard in this Christian life. This is tough going. There are people I don't like. I mean, after all, don't you all know that Obama's a Muslim? Oh, maybe I'm touching on your toes here. So I'm supposed to like him too? Yes. When I was lecturing at Bethel, they asked me, they asked me several times to teach a course in theology of mission. I didn't know a lot about it, but I think they assumed because I've been a missionary for 10 years, I must know a lot about missions. So I did an awful lot of studying, but I had the privilege of inviting a Muslim Christian to speak to my class. Did a wonderful job explaining to us Quran and other kinds of things. And in the question and answer, one young student raised, what made you decide to become a Christian? His answer, I think, startled all of us. He said, because I experienced for the first time that God loves me. God cares for me. I never knew that. And so the principle that I draw here is, I am determined, I am not determined by what I have achieved or what I possess but God's affirmation of me. Therefore, I can affirm you. I interpret humility this way. Humility is a virtue of personal stability. Equanimity, I think, is better, but it may be a new word for it. A stability of strength that enables me to acknowledge my weaknesses in the face of another's strength. Easy, I can easily say, I think Pastor Paul's a better preacher than I am. And you've kind of went down when you invited me, but you invited me nevertheless. Or I can retain my positions of strength without making you have a sense of lost esteem. So somebody comes, oh, you just have your doctorate from California. I have mine from Harvard. I, used to, I really don't fit in the academic world. I remember I was at a, I was invited to respond to a paper uh, that each person who was 
granted money to do research, would present their paper, and somebody responded. And I was responded from a friend of mine to respond to his paper on Chinese thought and theology. Well, a lot of people went before me. Oh, here's Professor so-and-so from Yale. Here's somebody else from Harvard. And I thought, and here's a guy from Bethel University. <laughs> Feel uncomfortable. My only redeeming thing is I don't think they know anything about Confucian thought. So whether I'm right or wrong in my critique, they won't know. But as this sense, and I go to, I go to academic theological conferences, and the first thing people ask me, and they ask, well, who did you see and who did you talk with? I didn't talk with anybody. For not, that's not my way. Oh, you didn't talk to Professor so-and-so? No. And so they all talk about who they met. I think who I am and what determines me is not what I've achieved or accomplished. I have in my office a plaque. Well, when I have an office, but it's in my little office right now. And it says, when God looks me over, he will not be impressed by the degrees I hold or the awards I've won, but only by the virtues of Christ's spirit in me. This is what he means. Let me give you a personal, well, it's been told to me, it wasn't my personal. As a missionary, you don't have anything, you don't have a home that's yours. You don't have a car. You don't have a bank account that you depend upon. You don't have much. So when you come home on furlough, you depend upon either your church or other people. Two friends, they were told this to me. They came home, and of course, in the alliance, you have to go to church to church as a missionary responsibility, talk about your experience and mission. Well, sometimes somebody will take pity on you and will loan you a car for those three or four months. Here's two missionaries. They met at council. I'm just adding council. And you say, well, how's it going? Going, you know, this wonderful person in our church loaned me a 1969 VW Beetle to go to the various churches. Oh, really? You know, my church did the same to me. But they gave me a 2011 Lexus. Really? And you say, well, why didn't God give me Lexus? Because that's not who you are. Who you are and what you've achieved is God's affirmation and God's work in your life. Therefore, I can be happy for him. Well, thank the Lord you got a Lexus. I'm glad. And I drive my little BW Beetle singing songs to the Lord. Because that's not what determines who I am. So... My thoughts to you this morning is, is there. That's the principle that I grant, gather from this text. Not in vain conceit, not in selfish ambition, but what's God doing? The humble person is the one who constantly gives gratitude to God for what he has done and the gifts he has given to you. There's so much I have to say, and I'm not going to say it this morning. <laughs> Well, I'll say some of it. <laughs> the Christian life for many, and this is my assessment from being in over 15 interim pastorates as a teaching pastor, that Christians struggle in their Christian life because they see themselves only as sinners. 
And we're constantly working at the task of whether or not as we leave church and we confess our sins and feel good, why does God not still love us? And we walk away broken, a bit of shame, and wondering how can God love me? And so we keep searching for evidences. And we have secondly understood redemption of God in terms of law. Let me explain to you what I mean. This is, a hype, this is an analogy. I always push the border, so you have to be patient with me. When I become a Christian, there's great joy at the release of being free from judgment. And we preach, he paid the price, he was there, on and on we go. But, that but becomes very, but now, that's God's job. Now it's your job. God redeemed you. God saved you. Now you got to do it. And so we build what I call the spiritual ladder. Think of it in your mind of a ladder. And each ladder has a rung of responsibilities. You have to be to church every Sunday. And if you're really spiritual, you'll always be at prayer meeting or whatever else the church has for you. You don't smoke or chew or run with people that do. Okay, I'm, I'm all right, Lord. And you, you work on this thing. You're going up that ladder all the time. And pretty soon, you've washed out. And you say, oh, boy, this thing, the pastor says there's such freedom and joy in being in Christ. No, there isn't. <laughs> it's just plain drudgery. I keep trying. I go up the ladder. I haven't done anything all week. I'm pretty good. I haven't sinned in any way. So then I can stand up in church and give a testimony. <laughs> Things are good. Go home from church and driving home and I get mad at this guy's tailgating me. When he goes by, I say a few choice words to him that I would not say in church. Back down you go again. Since at one point, guilty of all. Well, you can't give it up. So you start up the ladder again and you're up there and then you're down and you're up and you're down because it's the law. The law functions in the sphere or category in which you place it. If you put it in the law, it will always condemn you. Why not consider yourselves as the children of God, adopted into that children through Christ Jesus our Lord? So I want to change my thoughts here and talk about the practice of humility in the context of the incarnation of Christ. You don't talk much about this or here, but it's, I discovered it. In fact, I recently published a book on this concept, so my mind is full of things. And being old, I might forget some things, so be patient with me. The humanity of Christ, and let me quote to you, I'm drawing some things from the book that I've written. And let me give you a quote from a gentleman I'm sure you do not know, but he has a British name, Wien Andy, Thomas Wien Andy talks about the significance of the humanity of Christ. Listen to what he says. Jesus' human nature is absolutely essential if we are to comprehend clearly what Jesus accomplished in and through his humanity on the cross and in his resurrection. Ultimately, our salvation is unconditionally dependent upon the Son assuming humanity disfigured by sin and freely acting as Adam. Let me put some things, or let them put some things. Let's see where I'm at. Oh, I'm already over. 
Well, hang in there. This will end it. We're going to talk about the incarnation of Christ and the atoning reversal. Let me give you a phrase. It comes out of the early Greek patristic fathers. You find it in Irenaeus and Athanasius and a man you won't know uh, who's called Maximus the Confessor and other kinds of names who were a part of the Greek church. Our church, and understand correctly, comes from the Latin side, Roman. Our theology comes there. The Greeks went a little different way. And there's a statement. Jesus became human in order that we might become like him. He did that in the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus, and I'm going to use a word I think you might know or might not know, hypostatic union. Do you know this word, hypostatic? Hypostatic means bringing together two object natures in one person, divine and human together in the one person of Jesus. In his hypostatic union, he became and identified himself with us. He assumed our broken, alienated nature that stands against God in order that he might free us. He assumed that. Let me read for you again. It might come up for us on the board. We'll go on the board on that. Let's see where we are. I lost my guys. Oh, you have it. Yeah, the incarnation and the atoning exchange. He came up and took our oneness on with him in order that we might become free in him. There's a atoning or radical exchange that goes on in the incarnation. Only by identifying with us completely in our estranged and broken humanity, acting on our behalf, for our sakes, in our place, could the incarnate Son save us in our alienated existence as those who become separated from the life of God. He became one with us, yet without sin, says the author. The author of the Epistle of the Hebrews says, when Christ came into the world, chapter 10, verse 3, when Christ came into the world, sacrifice and offering you did not want, but a body you have prepared for me. And then again, in a very wonderful quote, in Hebrews chapter 10, if I can find my notes here, it's a long quote in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Since the children, it goes, since the children are flesh and blood, he too assumed flesh and blood in order that he might defeat that one who holds us in his power. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12 all the way down. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for our sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being saved. God became one with us. 
He sacrificed for us, his children. Let me take just a moment. Can you consider in your imagination, this is what I do when I wake up in the morning, can you consider God, Jesus, who is God himself, God now takes on human existence in the person of Jesus. And if you read the text, Jesus came to his father and said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. <laughs> really? And then you read in Paul, God presented him as an atonement of sacrifice through his blood in his shedding of his blood through faith. Here is God himself, the creator of all that exists, finally decides, I'm going to release and free my people, anybody else who has faith in me, that they might become whole again and restored. That's what he did. But that which is pure light, that which is pure holiness in an ethical sense, is going to enter into the darkest time, which is anathema to him. But he's going to do it. And at Gethsemane, where we read in the Gospels, great drops of sweat like blood. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he assumed our broken humanity that we might be made whole. That's the ultimate purpose of redemption. Redemption is the first step. We are now in relationship with God. We are God's children and all that he's done. And so as a Christian, it seems to me, rather than seeing myself as a degraded, terrible sinner, well, we are. We don't deny that. But what great joy is it when I stop and think about what God has done and I have full access into the Father. I'll tell you, some of my greatest times of worship. Worship is essentially for me the concept of gratitude. Oh, God, I'm so grateful. <laughs> I don't know why you did this. I'll talk about why I did that next Sunday. But Boy, I can talk to God. Let me give you a human analogy. I did something wrong. Let's say I, my favorite is I like snicker candy bars. And sometimes churches send me boxes of candy bars, Snickers. But let's say I go into a store and I look down and, boy, I have a natural like for those. I look at that Snicker can, oh, that looks so delicious and it's exciting. Look around, nobody's seen it. And I walk away and I say, oh, Lord, what in the world did I do? I go into the presence of my father and he brings me before, he's before the father and says, now, Lord, I did horrendous things that this person might be forgiven and free. And God looks at me and says, well, I know you were stupid in doing that. And he throws his arms around me and he says, but you're mine. You do that to your children too. When they've done some stupid thing you wish they had never done. Say, There's the door, kid. Out, bye-bye. You don't say that. You talk with them. You encourage them. You put your arms around them so that they feel, once again, I'm whole. That's what God did through the incarnation. I was there with you. I know what you did, and I experienced that temptation. And I can hear Satan and all his pinions saying, crucify him. He is one with them. He's a sinner just like them. Crucify him. 
But Jesus says, no. Could he have gone away? Yes. But for his love for you, he did not. If you ever think God does not love you, my suggestion to you is to consider the incarnation. There could be no death on the cross apart from the incarnation. There would be no body to die or to suffer. And had they known what I want to do for them, they never would have crucified me. Can you just think of it? We as rebellious creatures created by God, remarkable creators by God. And we rejected him, spit upon him, took a flag with big iron sticks and hit him in the back till it went down to the bones. This is God who came for us. Why? That you and I might be set free, that you and I might again to find those virtues in our lives. How do we get these virtues? Well, quickly, let me end with this. <laughs> I got a lot of endings here this morning. That's not normally me. But if you look in Luke chapter 18, the story of the sower and the seed, he went out and he threw the seed, and the seed was the truth of God's word. Some fell on hard ground. I interpret that as that, that soil is your heart soil, receiving, and it fell on... And I took it as we're so busy. We're doing things we don't have time to let that word dwell in us. Then it fell among the weeds. Then finally it fell among good soil and produced 100% more. How did it do that? If you read the text, it gives you three things. The first is hearing. Hearing, I'm sorry, listening. Listening is more than hearing. You come to church, you hear someone speak, well, it was kind of interesting, maybe not. Hearing, his next word was retaining. Retaining is listening in such a way that what you hear goes into your mind and into your heart and changes the way you see and act. And perseverance. Humanity in Adam and Eve separated from God. They lost not only hope, but the very possibility of being that human creature God created to be in his likeness. And they're wandering and searching for it. There's a wonderful book written by a man by the name of Robert Torrance. He teaches comparative literature at the University of California, Davis. It's not an easy book to read. But he argues that all humans are a questing animal, not only a rational animal, but a questing, searching and his subtitle is Transcendence in Myth, Religion, and Science. We're searching. Who are we? Why are we here? What are we doing? You can see it in science as well. Are there other people in this universe? Are we alone here? Why are we here? What are we looking for? I see it all around. For exercise, I was years ago a competitive swimmer. Now I'm not so good, but I, I can still move along pretty good. And I meet people, lots of people. And we talk, well, what do you do? Oh, so I'm a retired professor. What did you teach? Theology. No, I have to be careful. They don't know what theology means. I talk about God and think about God. And did you know, I said, that God is working at the task to make us personally whole again? Really? Their attention just goes through the roof. Surprised me. There was three or four people with whom I would talk. They long to be whole again. <laughs> How to be that person God made me to be. 
which I'm at free with myself and free toward others. And so I'd say, true Christians are also, also authentically human persons. Our humanity, we are not sinners because we have human existence. That's another question that I want to stick in, but I've gone too much. All I want to say to you today is, and don't buy this book. It's not a devotional book. <laughs> so you'll buy it and waste your money. <laughs> but if you're interested in that topic, that's where I wrote about it. Both defined it, talked about it, and how that dysfunction is healed by God. So this morning, my central concluding thought is, Whatever you do, see yourselves today as those sons and daughters adopted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges that Christ has accomplished. They're yours. Now, writes Paul in Romans chapter 6, now that you have been freed from slavery to sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I can walk into the presence of God and say, God, I, I'm your son. Not doing too well, Lord. He says, I know. But come and tell me. Talk with me. And God throws his loving arms around and says, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. You belong to me. You don't belong to evil. And concentrate and learn what it means. Go deeply into it, the truth. And let the truth sink deep into your heart so it gets into your mind. And starts to change how you act. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The hypostatic union in Christ is our model. In Jesus Christ, he triumphs over temptation and the onslaughts of sin by the power of the Spirit that dwelt in him. You do the same. It's hard to listen to the Spirit. He so quietly says, you don't need that Snicker candy bar, but I like it, Lord. It's really good. I know you feel that way, but you don't need to do it. Every temptation has at its source a failure to trust what God offers and says and what you want. And what I want is often more. And as we progress, now nobody becomes perfect with all these virtues. It is a process of growing. And so I've asked for humility. I thought that was a great one. Next Sunday, we'll talk about love the essence of God's nature and see how that coordinates with humility. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this magnanimous privilege of sharing your word with these wonderful community of people whose driving passion and direction is, I think, the best I've ever heard. We are a growing group of people after the heart of God. That's what you should be. It's a glorious experience to walk into his presence and to see how much he loves you and what he's done for you that you might have the freedom of being who you are and at the same time being the representative of God. Help us in this task, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.